This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's uh, my pleasure to sp- speak to you today about precision genomics and immunotherapy um, in the cancer field and uh, beyond. Uh, these are my disclosures and... I want to start with talking about um, my experience that has really informed my thinking on precision medicine in the clinic. Um, The uh, most recent experience is as the director for the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapy at UCSD Moore's Cancer Center, where there was a real emphasis of bringing the basic science and the clinical care together to help patients with cancer. And um, before that, I was the founder and chair at MD Anderson Cancer Center of a very large uh, clinical trials department uh, that did early phase clinical trials, uh, meaning that these were cancer patients that had really failed all therapy. And um, this was back uh, circa Uh, 2007, when we started uh, using precision medicine in its earliest form. And it really gave us a glimpse um, into uh, the potential for this to really uh, transform the care uh, for patients with cancer. Uh, So I have several take-home points. And the main being that precision medicine is all about getting the right drug to the right patient at the right time. And the main take-home points is that, first, at the genomic level, every metastatic tumor is unique and complex, uh, what I'm going to refer to as malignant uh, snowflakes. I live in San Diego, but I'm from Canada, so I know a little bit about snowflakes. And every snowflake, um, its crystal structure is very complicated, and every snowflake is unique. And we really think metastatic tumors are, at the genomic level, similar in that way. The second point is that metastatic disease requires customized, individualized combination treatments, not single agents. Uh, Third point uh, is that the pillars of precision medicine are genomics and immunotherapy. And people think of them separately, but they are really married to each other. And the final point is that immunotherapy is best suited for genomically complicated tumors. Some of the tumors that we previously thought were really untouchable, that's where immunotherapy fits in best. So genomic technology has gone undergone some amazing changes, and this is what has really been able to feed this revolution in precision medicine. Um, the first human genome was sequenced about 2003, and it took 13 years to sequence a single genome. Now uh, we can sequence it in a day. Um, At the time, it cost $2.7 billion to sequence a genome. Uh, By about 2007, it was down to $100 million per person, which was still a little bit steep for insurance or for research labs. But now we can sequence a genome for $1,000, and that makes uh, the technology usable um, in the patient setting. So to me, this is breathtaking progress, unparalleled in human history, that has really fed our ability to uh, perform precision medicine in the clinic. What this has led to is a very remarkable evolution in clinical trial design. 
So classically, we have thought about cancers as where did the cancer come from? If it came from the lung, it's lung cancer. If it came from the breast, it's breast cancer. If it came from the colon, it's colon cancer. And we thought of each of these as one disease. But with genomic sequencing, we began to realize that as an example, lung cancer was actually many subsets of disease uh, defined by their genomic alteration. But furthermore, we also came to realize that the same genomic alteration could exist in many different types of cancer. You might find the same alteration in colon cancer, in liver cancer, in brain tumors, in lung cancer. And furthermore, that we could treat patients uh, based on that genomic alteration, regardless of which organ the cancer originated in. And this has really led to some transformative changes in clinical trial design. So our standard model was randomized clinical trials of unselected patients where we would see a small number of patients respond. The new model is small patient populations, highly selected to match with the drugs um, that they're given and where we expect to see much higher response rates. So um, this has led uh, to a new era uh, that was really almost unimaginable, um, even a decade ago. And uh, that is what we call tissue agnostic approvals driven by genomics. And what that means is the FDA approving drugs based on the genomic alteration and the organ of origin doesn't actually matter. These are approvals across solid tumors, for example. The first of these was on May 23rd, 2017, when the FDA approved an immunotherapy, pembrolizumab, for all solid tumors based on whether or not they had mismatch repair gene defect. And there were three remarkable um, aspects of this approval. Uh, the first two, many people know. The third, which is probably the most remarkable, is probably the least well-known. So the first was, as I mentioned, it was a tissue agnostic approval, was for all solid tumors. Didn't matter if you had lung or colon or breast cancer, etc. The second was that it was approval based on a genomic marker. And it was approval of an immunotherapy based on a genomic marker. And the third aspect of this approval, which to me is the most remarkable, was that in part it was based on retrospective real-world data, not just on prospective clinical trials. And since then, the FDA has approved another indication uh, for drug palbocyclib that is entirely based on uh, real-world data. And with all of our computerized records, um, this really uh, makes possible very rapid approvals as we look into our databases and look at uh, efficacy based on uh, real-world data. Uh, but that's just the beginning. Um, since then, the FDA has approved a drug called larotrectinib, uh, specifically for patients with a genomic aberration of NTRAC fusions. And this is another tissue agnostic approval in adults and children with solid tumors, doesn't matter what their tumor is. And then another approval for intractinib, another drug for NTRAC fusions, again, tissue agnostic. And then um, most recently, pembrolizumab, uh, again, immunotherapy, 
uh, approval based on tumor mutational burden high um, across solid tumors. And this most recent approval was in June of 2020. So I want to step back a bit and talk about uh, genomics and immunotherapy and the relationship between them. So uh, the pillars of precision and personalized medicine to me are genomics and immunotherapy. And many people think of them as separate entities, but they're really a couple and they're married to each other. And what do I mean by that? The genomics... Um, is the, often the determinant of whether or not immunotherapy works. And the reason for that is that when we give immunotherapy, specifically immune checkpoint blockade, what we are doing is we are reawakening the immune system. But the reawakened immune system still has to recognize the tumor. And uh, the more mutated the tumor the better the response to immunotherapy. And this makes sense because the more mutated the tumor, the bigger the difference between the tumor and the normal tissue. And that makes it easier for the reawakened immune cells to recognize that the tumor is abnormal and is different from the normal cells and to eradicate it. So what we found is that the response rate for immunotherapy for low mutational burden was 4%. But when you get to very high mutational burden, the response rates goes up to 67%. Um, So uh, while at UCSD, uh, one of the central features of our program was a molecular tumor board. And uh, this molecular tumor board brought together physicians of different specialties, um, medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, uh, radiation therapists, radiologists, pathologists, and so forth, with our basic scientists, with our computer specialists. And we did molecular profiling, clinical grade, on about 21,000 patients. And the idea here was uh, to present patients and to make decisions and give them therapy. So this was not just about um, doing research, uh, divorce from patient care, but um, doing research, but also informing better patient care. So I'll give you some examples of um, some of the work that uh, we did. Um, And I want to start with individual patients because I think that um, they illustrate uh, some of the potential. Uh, This is a patient um, who uh, with metastatic basal cell carcinoma, which is a very uh, rare tumor. I actually saw him in a clinic about six weeks ago. Um, At the time we treated him, which was October 2015, um, he was 55 years old. He'd already failed uh, six different therapies. He was in a wheelchair, not doing well. He had brain, liver, and bone metastases. And he failed the FDA-approved therapies, which are targeted therapies like vismodigib and sinitigib, which target the classic alteration, the classic genomic alteration in these patients. And that's a patch one alteration or hedgehog, but he didn't respond to those uh, therapies at all. And 
so what would you most likely do next for this patient? I think a lot of people would say, well, uh, send to hospice. Uh, might be uh, appropriate. Uh, but because we were uh, doing a lot of genomic profiling, that's what we did. And what we found was very interesting. The first thing was he had the target. He had the patch one target, which mediates response to this vismotigib and sinitigib, the therapies he had failed. So why did he fail those therapies? Well, I think it's obvious just by looking at his um, genomic profile, he had multiple other alterations that were driving the disease. So targeting one of them was just not good enough. And very interestingly, he had a very high tumor mutational burden. Anything over 50, we consider very high. And he also had a marker that we know now and we've published is uh, associated with response to immunotherapy called PDL1 amplification. So uh, we treated him with nivolumab, which is an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, this is uh, his liver. Uh, this is a scan, and this is his liver before treatment. And this is two months after treatment. And fortunately, he went into complete remission, which is ongoing now at uh, five and a half years. As an oncologist, I'm a bit hesitant to call anybody cured, but I think that he may be cured of his disease. And again, these types of responses were unimaginable a decade ago. But I also want to talk about some of the downsides of immunotherapy and how genomics can help us with that, because it's not all good. Um, even though we all uh, believe immunotherapy is some of the most important uh, types of new treatment that we've discovered, uh, some patients do poorly with it. And there's a phenomena called hyperprogression. And what hyperprogression is, uh, when you give immunotherapy and patients progress in an accelerated fashion, in fact, it's almost as if you've poured gasoline on a fire. So this is an example of a woman who unfortunately experienced hyperprogression, 44 years old, triple negative breast cancer. This was her scan uh, two months before she received immunotherapy. This was her scan right before immunotherapy. And you can see the uh, tumor hasn't changed much. And then six weeks after immunotherapy, her tumor explodes. And one thing to note is that in her genomic profile, she has an MDM2 amplification. And what we found is that there are two genomic alterations, EGFR alterations and especially MDM2 amplifications that can predict uh, for hyperprogression or accelerated progression. So the important point here is that next generation sequencing can help define not only who to treat, but who not to treat with specific therapies. And that's probably who not to treat is probably as important as who to treat. Uh, so I'm going to give you another patient. This is a patient of mine, a patient with uh, what's called a high-grade neuroendocrine cervical cancer. This was a 49 
year-old woman that came from Saudi Arabia, and she came to see me in January of 2016. She had been treated with surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy, and she had extremely advanced disease. She's had huge abdominal tumor, looked like she was seven months pregnant, but it was all cancer. She had impending bowel obstruction, impending kidney obstruction, and uh, she unfortunately did not have very long to live. So again, the question is, what do you most likely do for this patient? And sent to hospice might be a perfectly reasonable answer. We felt bad that she had traveled so far, so we wanted to do comprehensive genomic profiling on her, but we had a problem, and that was because she only had a week or two left to live, um, doing a tissue biopsy and getting the profiling often takes a month. So that was just too long a period of time. And that's where uh, new technology comes into play. So what we can now do is liquid biopsies. And these are interrogating the blood. And all we need is a blood specimen, and we can do gene sequencing on the blood specimen uh, by extracting shed DNA that comes from the cancer and is shed into the blood. And of course, this is much faster. And this is what we found on this patient. Um, the average patient, when we look at the blood, has about three or four alterations, and she had over 20 alterations. So at the time, we took a quick guess and thought she may have hypermutated um, DNA, and that means a high mutational burden. And so we treated her again with uh, immunotherapy with checkpoint blockade. And this is her tumor before therapy. Uh, this is eight months after therapy. And my last contact with her, uh, she did respond returned to Saudi Arabia was three and a half years after treatment, and she had an ongoing um, complete remission at that point. Again, remarkable response that was really unimaginable just a few years ago. Um, once we treated her, however, we did do the tissue biopsy to try and figure out um, more information about what was going on with her. And sure enough, she had a lot of genomic alterations in the tissue uh, genomic sequencing. The average patient has about four genomic alterations. I think she had 23. She had a very high mutational burden, over 50, it was 53. And it turned out that she had microsatellite unstable disease and a mismatch repair gene defect, which we now know is an indication uh, for immunotherapy. And we also now know that the blood tumor mutational burden can be uh, usable to determine therapy for patients. So an important point here, cutting edge technologies are needed for complicated cancer and blood-based tumor mutational burden and microsatellite status is now available in a clinical grade form and usable really by any oncologist. So um, this was uh, all very exciting, but as uh, sequencing became more powerful and gave us more information, originally uh, we were very excited about that. 
And then we realized that it was telling us something that really complicated our lives. And that's what if every patient with metastatic disease is different? And that brings us back to the snowflakes. Um, as you can see from their crystal structure, each of the snowflake is um, complicated. Each snowflake is different from every other snowflake. And that's what we've really discovered is true for metastatic tumors. And um, we've sequenced, as I said, 20, over 20,000 patients. Uh, but I'm just giving you this slide because this is what fits on a slide. And I want to use it as an example. This is sequencing uh, breast cancer. And I want to use these two patients. Uh, both of them have something called ERB2 amplification, which leads to HER2 overexpression. And uh, this is a known treatment. Uh, that's FDA approved, which are HER2 targeting agents. But if you look at their sequence, you can see that even though these two patients have something in common, the rest of the molecular portfolio is distinct from each other. And it's pretty complicated. There's more than one alteration. And so this idea that we treat patients that have something in common with the same regimen doesn't really work if we think about what the genomics is telling us. Yes, these patients both have something in common and need one of the same drug, but for the rest of the abnormalities in their genomic portfolio, they need an individualized combination of therapy. And that's not something that we've done before. So instead of using a consistent drug between patients, even in the presence of different molecular profiles, which is the traditional way, we wanted to use a consistent strategy, which is molecular matching, but allow different drugs matched or customized to each patient. So here is the idea. Uh, this would be a patient-centric trial where every patient is considered as an individual. And even if both patients, patient one and two as examples, have marker A in common. The rest of their portfolio is different. So patient A would get drug A, B, and C, and then patient two would get drug A, E, and F, an individualized combination. And that gave birth to a trial that we called iPredict, predict for profile um, uh, perspective investigation of profile-related evidence determining individualized cancer therapy. And the idea here, we initiated this in uh, 2015. The idea was to give customized combinations. And uh, there was a second part of this protocol where we uh, treated newly diagnosed patients with lethal malignancies, trying to treat them earlier uh, before their disease really became resistant. And we published the first part of this in Nature Medicine in April 2019. And uh, this is what we found. Uh, so the first finding is that matching patients to drugs based on genomics is not a yes or no answer. It's the degree of matching that really counts. So a patient that has 10 alterations and is matched to only one drug gets a very low matching score of 10%. Um, if you have 10 alterations, it's really important to match many of those alterations, not just one of them. 
And patients with a high matching score, uh, their response rates were about 45%. Keeping in mind that these patients have refractory disease and have failed um, uh, to respond uh, to uh, FDA-approved therapies. And then uh, in contrast to the 45% for high matching score, uh, patients with a low matching score or unmatched had a response rate of 16%. And then when we look at survival, it's really remarkably different. The patients with a high matching score at two years, their survival is about 60%. The patients with a low matching score who um, had a very low matching or no matching, their two-year survival is only about 20%. Uh, so the bottom line is that the high matching score translates into significantly better response rate, better survival, and better progression-free survival, which I didn't show. Um, so this is an example of um, some of our individualized therapies. And uh, this is a 62-year-old man with poorly differentiated carcinoma of unknown primary, uh, meaning we don't know where the cancer came from. Uh, but we do know the genomic alterations. And the patient had an atypical KRAS alteration, which, however, is uh, deleterious. And um, KRAS activates the MEK pathway. So we gave the patient a MEK inhibitor uh, called trametinib. The patient also had an ARID1A alteration. ARID1A is a chromatin remodeling gene that does many things, but um, there's... Uh, data supporting that it may be uh, sensitive to PARP inhibitors. So we gave a combination of both drugs. You can see the dramatic response that this patient had uh, with therapy ongoing at uh, 15 months. Uh, so I'll just mention some other uh, uh, important um, initiatives that I'm involved with. Um, I've worked with the Worldwide Innovative Network for Precise Cancer Therapy um, for over a decade. Um, this is dedicated to the global de delivery of precision medicine. And the idea that genomics is only the tip of the iceberg. There's transcriptomics, proteomics, immunomics, uh, epigenetic changes, and so forth. And um, as a first effort, uh, Wynn has uh, been looking at the importance of the transcriptome or the RNA expression in patients. And uh, the first uh, paper published by Wynn again in Nature Medicine in April 2019 uh, was a uh, international trial of precision medicine that for the first time incorporated not just genomics, but also transcriptomics. 303 patients were enrolled and the trial showed that transcriptomic understanding uh, remarkably increases the number of patients that can be matched to therapy and how well they can be matched to therapy. And um, there's another new type of trial that I'm very excited about. And a great example is uh, TAPROOP, which is a master observational trial. I mentioned early on the importance of real world data. Well, this is real world data, but in a structured form. An observational trial uh, taking place uh, nationally, which will collect uh, data 
uh, structured in order to better understand uh, new therapies uh, for patients uh, with cancer. And then the last couple of things I want to mention um, here is uh, the host. I've talked about a lot about the genomics of the tumor, but we've paid less attention, need to pay more attention about the host because the host um, informs toxicity, immuno, immunity, and microenvironments. And um, this uh, person, who actually isn't a patient, um, but um, obviously a chain smoker, pretty robust and in your face, uh, celebrating uh, her 100th birthday. And, uh, you know, the question is, um, is this good luck or is this genomics? And um, um, I don't know the answer, but I'm willing to bet that it's her uh, genomics that determined that she would stay in good shape, even though that she's a chain smoker. And extrapolating from there, I think genomics can tell us a lot about how a host will respond to an individual therapy. It's an area that we need to pay a lot more attention to. And then the last thing I want to mention, which has just fascinated me, is how we take this beyond cancer. And I'm going to give you one example, but there are a lot. Um, the FGFR3 gene is involved in bladder cancers, and it activates FGFR. And there are therapies, targeted drugs that can be used to inhibit it and get responses in bladder cancer. The exact same gene in the germline form, in the hereditary form, causes achondroplastic dwarfism. And so the question is, um, could we use the drugs that inhibit the activity of this gene in order to normalize the phenotype of somebody born with achondroplastic dwarfism. I don't know the answer to that, but it has been tried in mice with achondroplasia, and at least in the mouse models, it seems to be effective. So I will finish by giving a special thanks um, to uh, the precision medicine team and especially to our patients, and I will be happy to entertain questions. Thank you. Giselle, one of the um, things that it just sort of seems to me to be a theme throughout what you just talked about is this um, is how promising all of the, all of this sounds and the directions we're going in. But what's in the back of my mind is how do you, how do you frame this in your own mind in terms of what you are talking to patients about? Do you see what you're doing at this point as simply a treatment option, or is this all an ongoing research project? Or is it both? How do you frame that? So I think that's a really interesting question. And um, really, um, for me, it's uh, become a treatment option. But I think for, um, uh, for most of the world, it's really a research question. Uh, so um, I, I've been doing this now, uh, this field, for over a decade, sort of an early adopter. And I can see the power and how it makes sense. Um, 
But um, so the bottom line to me is that we now have tools that we did not have 20 years ago. And we can understand what is wrong with an individual patient's tumor. Uh, there's no more guessing. We don't have to have guessing games. Our science isn't perfect, but before we used to treat on the basis of population averages. Uh, we'd have, uh, we'd have uh, 50 patients with colorectal cancer. We'd put them on a trial. 20% would respond, and we would give that therapy to everybody. And again, uh, every patient that came in, 20% would respond, just like in the clinical trial, 80% would not. We didn't know who would respond, who wouldn't. We just didn't have those types of tools. Now we have much better tools. We're not perfect at this by any means, but we're way well on the road. And when a patient comes in to me, I don't care if they have the rarest uh, genomic profile you could ever imagine. You know, they may be one in a thousand, uh, but that really doesn't matter. They don't need to be treated as a population average. They need to be treated as that individual with that profile. And so to me, this makes complete sense as a treatment option, but I think we're uh, still on the road um, for this type of thing being adopted. And we do do it under the auspices of clinical trials. That's how we've done it at UCSD. That's how we've done it at Wynn. And um, we now have national trials um, that um, I'm, the, uh, I'm leading and other people are leading. So we're doing it under the auspices of clinical trials. I think that um, within five years, I hope that this is the way everybody is going to practice. Great. Well, thank you. Um, and so, Patricia, why don't we, we take your question um, and get the ball rolling here? Yes. Uh, actually, doctor addressed that a little bit. I'm, a, I'm in remission. I was diagnosed in 2013 and continue to be a patient at Moore's. Um, it's interesting to me that the biology now is being used for the treatment. And so I wanted to ask if she could maybe even predict, since there's been such a dramatic change just since 2013 for me, uh, whether this is going to be applied relatively soon to tumors that have not metastasized. Um, well, uh, first of all, I'm very happy that you remain in remission um, now so many years later. And uh, that's obviously um, a, a very good uh, uh, sign. And um, I think you've asked a key question. And in fact, it, it, it has been part of the clinical trial um, that we did. So we did um, the clinical trial that I spoke about, I predict, um, we initially looked at patients with um, who had failed all therapies, uh, and they had metastatic um, disease that um, had been through a lot. And we know those are the toughest tumors because the therapies, if they're not successful, they drive resistance. And we also know that if you can give the therapy earlier in the course of the disease, the tumor is not as hardy, it's not as resistant. So um, part of that trial was to give newly diagnosed patients um, with lethal cancers, so they had to have an expected um, mortality of 50% uh, of the patients would die at two years uh, before we could do this because it was considered a research question. And uh, to give them right up front, as soon as they were diagnosed with metastatic disease, 
um, uh, give them these customized matched combinations of therapy. Um, we haven't yet published the results, but we've submitted them. And um, they're, uh, I think it's very close to acceptance. And the bottom line is that what we expected was true, that if we give the patients the therapy earlier, they do even better. And then the next question, um, so you have to do this gradually, um, is what if we go even earlier? What, why wait for the patient to have metastatic disease? If we can impact these really horrible tumors that are metastatic and there's a lot of tumor burden, what would happen when the patient comes in with a one centimeter tumor? with a tiny little tumor? Could we completely eradicate it with um, understanding the biology, looking at the genomics, looking at the immune environment, giving them the, uh, the right therapy and just get rid of that one centimeter tumor without having the patient go through um, surgery that might be very difficult or radiation? Um, so I think that's the next question I'm very excited about. Um, it's much more difficult to do a research um, question in that setting because a lot of those patients are already curable, maybe curable with some tough therapies, but still curable. So that becomes an ethics question. When can you move it up even further? So that's actually a, a really good point. And actually, it points to one of the questions I wanted to ask, get on the table is, um, how far can this reasonably go? I mean, I was really struck by your question, what if every patient is different? And I'm wondering, by the way, as a sidebar, um, maybe that should be what if every tumor is different, right? Because it's not really right. the patient's DNA so much as the tumor. And I guess it's even feasible, I presume, that somebody could have two different kinds of tumors in their body. And so you might have, so it's really with the tumor differences. But how far can this go? I mean, do you, do you see that the trajectory right now is that we will simply get better and better in an incremental way and eventually be able to target any cancer for any individual? Is that where this is going or is there going to be some, or do you anticipate there's going to be some point at which you have reached a maximum benefit from this approach? No, I think it's going to get better and better. And in fact, uh, when you look at what's happened to science, especially medicine, all the predictions of the trajectories of um, uh, the development of science and knowledge have been off, but they've been off because um, even the most positive predictions predictions of the trajectories have underestimated um, how fast things have moved along. And so I think it's going to go get better and better. I don't think um, there's, um, I don't really think that there's a plateau. Um, I would like to see um, cancer eradicated in my lifetime. And um, I'm not supposed to hype anything, but, um, <laughs> I, but I actually, I don't want to get in trouble with any colleagues, but I actually genuinely believe that we're going to do this. So, well, this reminds me of a conversation we had uh, back in 2014, I think, when you served as moderator for Patrick Soon Shung, who was one of the speakers in our can the Ethics Center's cancer series. And you might remember um, he was showing some remarkable, promising results with pancreatic cancer. Um, where he showed a patient who, um, by all rights, from what everybody else has seen, would have died in a short period of time, and their their tumor load seemed to have disappeared. Um, it looked so promising. Um, 
what you know what is the trajectory there how far are we from success is that sort of at least for the time being plateaued uh so pancreatic cancer uh that's been a a difficult one to crack um but um and so um i hear what i've heard many times in my career that it's never going to be treatable and i can't tell you how many times i've heard that and every single time uh not every single time uh, because pancreatic cancer but many times that has not been true um so um just to give you an example um a disease called gist um that uh uh, at one point, it was um, worse than pancreatic cancer. The response rates to any chemotherapy were zero. And then it was discovered um, that this tumor was driven by kit mutations. And there was this new drug called imatinib that is also used for chronic myelogenous leukemia. And there was a single patient published in New England Journal of Medicine um, this patient was published six months after a premier review article, which said that there was no way to treat this, this cancer. And this single patient, um, they were able to show that when you gave uh, this drug, imatinib, which is FDA approved now, uh, the tumor turned off its metabolism within 24 hours. Um, so science is really an amazing Thing. And so that's just an example, one example of a tumor that's considered completely untreatable with 0% response rate, worse than pancreatic, because pancreatic cancers actually have responses, um, that was uh, completely transformed um, uh, with one patient. And now this is a very treatable cancer. Um, so um, I... I, I, I I, I, I've heard this already several times. I, I absolutely believe in the science behind what we're doing and um, that new uh, discoveries will make even the most difficult uh, cancers uh, treatable. Yeah, so that leads to another question that I have that leads to a question that's um, in the chat. So, so first, I'm um, having... Also, at the same time as Patricia, having been diagnosed with cancer in 2013, I'm directly personally familiar with that tension that exists between a physician or researcher, depending on how you see yourself at any given point, um, noting that there has been some wonderful success, that possibility, that hope that helps somebody keep going and balancing that with the likelihood where in some cases the likelihood of success is 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 right now unfortunately low for many many cancers so i don't know to what extent you could talk about that tension between hope and likelihood i mean how do you deal with that you don't want to promise the moon because you can't give the moon but you also don't want to um, tell somebody there's no hope. Yeah, I think you're addressing a really important question. There's a lot of controversy about that. And I, I consider myself a physician first and foremost. And um, the research is all about the patient. Uh, the whole purpose of the research is to help that patient um, get better. Um, clinical research that does not benefit patients, and there is that type of clinical research, I've never participated in that. Uh, it's just my strong belief that, that I want to participate in research that I believe can help patients. Um, so I genuinely think that most patients are not that naive. 
Um, most patients that come in with um, metastatic aggressive cancers, um, uh, some of them may be in a bit of denial for what they say, either for their families or to give themselves hope. Um, but I think um, pretty much everybody in America knows that if you have metastatic pancreatic cancer, you're in big trouble. And um, so I think, you know, as personally, I try to balance it out um, and give um, a realistic expectation. Um, and my own finding is, especially that patients who seek out clinical trials, um, I don't think that they're unrealistic. I think that just the act of trying um, improves their improves their life because there's a many patients um, that don't seek out clinical trials. They, they say, you know, I'm done. I, you know, want to stay home. I want to have time with my family. But I find that the patients both at MD Anderson and at UCSD that seek out these clinical trials, um, I've had many patients that have said to me, um, don't give up on me. Even if it's not going to work, I want to know that I'm trying. And uh, so um, I think there are ways to balance. And I think it's important to know that for patients who seek out these trials, just that you're trying, um, that gives them a better quality of life. Great. Thank you. So um, one of the questions is, is about the, the regulatory environment that you're in for this to happen. So somebody asks, are you required to obtain FDA approval for the use of these drugs on specific patients? Or is there some sort of global approval for the approach? Right, so it depends on what you're doing. Um, if the drug is called experimental, uh, which means it has not been FDA approved, um, or if any part of the combination that you give is experimental, um, you have to obtain an FDA, um, you have to obtain an IND and you have to be doing it under the auspices of a clinical trial. Um, and the FDA has to approve what you're doing with that drug. Um, uh, but there's another class of drugs um, that are FDA approved, but um, we use them what I will call off-label. In, in other words, the drug may be approved for colorectal cancer, and we're going to use it for breast cancer. Um, that has been um, um, always legal for us to do that um, in the United States. And indeed, oncologists, about 40%, even if you go into a community practice, about 40% of the drug uses, usage for cancer patients is what's called off-label, where the oncologist gets, I guess you could say, creative um, with different drugs. Um, so some of what we do is off-label. Um, and I think the difference between what we do and the community oncologist does is that we're very focused on understanding the biology of an individual patient and giving them um, the right drug for that situation. So the off-label use of drug is not limited by the FDA. It is limited by the expense of the drug and if you can find ways to pay for it. And um, we, we really set up a really good system at UCSD where we were able to obtain drugs because there's many mechanisms in the United States 
um, to obtain these drugs without um, saddling the patients with the financial burden of them. Yeah, actually, that sort of jumps ahead to a question I was going to ask later, but um, what is the insurance environment now for paying for drugs that have not yet been approved to target the, the actual tumor rather than the location of the tumor? So, so for, that, that is off-label use of drugs. Would insurance companies cover that off-label use? Um, so in general, government insurance will not. Um, and, um, but private insurance, for some reason, um, in my experience, about um, 40% of the time will cover it. Um, for no for no good ascertainable reason that I can um, uh, that I can see, and um, then um, and then there are other mechanisms um, to also obtain many of these drugs for patients. Uh, many of the companies have uh, what's called a compassionate use of the drug. Uh, where you can get the drug, uh, the company will give you the drug uh, without asking for payment. Um, and there's other mechanisms, foundations and so forth to get these, um, to get drugs for patients. Um, I don't know that that's scalable for the world, but uh, I've always viewed our role as showing this works. And then the FDA and the system needs to figure out how to scale it once we can show it works. I have to say what you what you've just said is remarkable compared to the kinds of discussions we've heard in these programs in the past. Um, there was a presumption or worry that insurance companies would um, almost never be willing to cover something like this. And the fact that that quite a few quite a high percentage do is very good news. Um, and I think there'd be a, a worry that um that uh, any kind of use like this might be seen as as uh, being in it, you know, being research, and so there's not going to be coverage for it. And that's that that's uh, very nice to hear. Um, so I do want to make um, some comment about this. So um, we do do it under a protocol, under a clinical trial, and um, uh, many insurance companies will not cover it. So when I said forty percent, um, that's um, Definitely not the majority. Oh, yes, but it's still a high percentage. <laughs> it's still higher than people. Um, so the rumor that that there's no coverage is not correct. Um, insurance cover, insurance comfort companies will deny it. And um, in my opinion, have the right to deny it because it's not um, it's not standard. Uh, but there's something else that. Um, uh, insurance companies and actually the government insurance, Medicare, uh, will cover many things in a clinical trial, and that's by law. Um, so uh, many aspects of a clinical trial, even if you have, and I'll give you an example, if you have an experimental drug, um, they won't cover the experimental drug but they will cover the infusion costs of that experimental drug. And they will cover the blood work to monitor the side effects for that experimental drug. And that was a law that was created actually by Bill Clinton um, uh, many years ago. And um, uh, Medicare covers it, government insurance covers it, and many of the private insurances, if not most, uh, follow suit and cover uh, many aspects of clinical trials. So 
Um, I'm going to move to a question that's in the chat. Um, so, the, the, um, and this is, I, I think, something that you alluded to more than talking a lot about in your talk, but you, you were pointing out that you have both these the genomic and the immunotherapy approaches one can combine. So the question is, can the combined application of CAR-T therapies along with the other genetic matching immunotherapies find a useful approach to metastatic solid tumors? Um, so I think that that is a really good question, but I think the first part of that that we need to address is CAR-T therapies um, in solid tumors. So CAR-T therapies have been amazing in some um, uh, hematologic malignancies. And uh, uh, for some uh, lymphomas and leukemias, um, patients that um, you would never think um, had any hope, uh, they get their CAR-T therapy and they appear to be cured. Um, it's really amazing. But the thing about CAR-T therapy is that it's really a precision medicine therapy. It's a very personalized therapy. The the T cells have been engineered to recognize the tumor. They recognize um, a part of what's on the cell surface of the tumor. And they've been, uh, these T cells, um, their job is to kill things that don't belong in your body, uh, whether it's uh, bacteria or viruses or cancer. Um, and these are specifically engineered T cells. So they already know how to kill things, but they didn't know how to recognize the tumor before, but they've been engineered uh, with amazing um, science, I think, uh, so that they recognize the tumor and they can therefore kill it. Um, so this is like almost the ultimate uh, personalized therapy. Yeah, and I just want to underline that um, the goal, or the, the approach is not that they have developed T cells that can recognize any tumor. They have been designed to recognize the specific tumor in this specific patient. So it, that's why you're saying it's highly individualized. Well, it's, it, it may be the specific tumor in the specific patient, or it may be something that's on... Um, most tumors that are a specific type of tumor. So there might be a specific lymphoma that has, that each of them have something on their surface. And so whatever uh, you engineer the T cell, and it's good for most patients with that lymphoma because that is the marker that the lymphoma carries. Or the other way to develop them is to individualize the CAR T cell to recognize one person's tumor. And that's when it becomes highly personalized. I guess. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so I have a, a question about the um, context in which you're doing this work. So in a normal, a, a regular, typical clinical trial of, of drugs and, and interventions, Usually you need lots of people in the study in order to get enough data to know what the relative chances are that this actually works. But in this case, you really are working in a world where in some ways it's always an N of one. It's one person per trial. So how do you think about that from a research perspective? Right. How do you know it works, right? And what does that mean to work? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if everybody gets a different therapy, how do you know it works? Um, so I'm trying, going to try to articulate it. 
Um, so we are not um, evaluating the efficacy of a specific therapy in a specific disease, because to do that, you need 20 to 1,000 patients that get the same therapy. And all our patients get a different therapy, but there's still something that we can evaluate, and that's how we did the studies. We can evaluate our strategy. We can evaluate the strength of our strategy. So what we do is we calculate how well the patient was matched with their therapy and we give it a matching score. So we calculate um, how well we were able to carry out what we wanted to carry out. And then we ask the question, how effective was this strategy? If a higher matching score correlates with a better outcome, our strategy is effective. And that's exactly what happened. So I showed you in the published study in Nature Medicine that um, the patients with a high matching score, which was over 50%, um, their two-year survival was about 60%. Uh, the patients with the uh, low matching score or zero matching score, but also anybody less than 50%, uh, their two-year survival was about 20%. The difference between a two-year survival of 60% and 20% is quite dramatic. But again, we were evaluating the strategy. Every patient gets a different therapy. We're not evaluating individual therapies. We're evaluating the algorithm of us figuring out um, how to give these patients drugs. So um, in this context of this kind of research where you're looking at a strategy instead of a, an individual drug or individual treatment, which makes a lot of sense. Um, how do you approach the informed consent? I mean, so there, um, the people that we're talking about are in a state where probably everything else has, you know, they've tried and, and this is the last resort. And so in certain senses, they are desperate. So how do you convey to somebody in that circumstance the nature of this being experimental and not clinical? How do you, how, what, what, what are the words you use, the approaches you use to convey that in informed consent? Yeah. So I think the first thing is that um, just by um, presenting an informed consent document, we're telling them that this is part of a clinical trial. And uh, therefore, it's still a research question. And, um, uh, you know, I try to be pretty transparent with patients, although a lot of them have, uh, you know, done their reading or looked at uh, the, the videos on the, um, uh, you know, on the Internet or even looked up my papers. I'm surprised how many people come in and, and have looked at their genomics and tell me what I'm going to prescribe. And uh, they actually like have it pretty much right. And not all the time, but um, uh, so, and, and we tell them that um, everybody's going to get a different therapy, um, that we're going to evaluate the efficacy of our strategy and um, that uh, the early evidence and what we believe is um, that we're um, weighing the dice in their favor. 
by understanding the biology of the tumor and uh, trying to give them the best therapy. And at this point, we also tell them that we have publications um, that uh, support that. Um, but I also always tell patients that the science is not perfect. Um, that unfortunately many patients do not respond. Some patients will have um, uh, side effects, maybe significant side effects. And so um, uh, we cannot guarantee the outcome. Um, the only thing that we can guarantee is that we will try our best. Um, I have a question for you that goes back to my own treatment. And that is that um, I realized as I watched the process that if my physician told me the likelihood of how bad the side effects could be and how bad some of them were, I might have been more reluctant to go through the treatment. Um, in my case, I was kind of on a borderline between definitely have to get treatment and definitely don't. So as a result, it was more of a choice. And I've realized in retrospect that in some ways, if they think the best thing is for me to have the treatment, then the best thing is for them to not push too hard on how bad the side effects are. Have you dealt with that sort of a question when you're thinking about how to talk to a patient? Um, so I tend to be more upfront with patients. And I tend to, t you know, and but one of the issues is, it may be that 90% of patients don't experience uh, bad side effects and 10% do. Um, and But I try to give patients a really realistic point of view of uh, what their side effects will be. And also why, at the same time, telling them why I think they should be doing uh, whatever I think they should be doing. Um, so I don't know if you're physician minimized it or or maybe you were more sensitive to the drugs than a lot of other patients because it's really hard sometimes um, you know sometimes we use drugs and uh, really uh, most patients sail through it and then you give it and you know I always tell a patient that I can't tell you how it's going to be for you as an individual and then um, the person in front of me, you know, has horrible side effects. Um, and the opposite occurs too. I've told patients that this is a really tough therapy and most people have problems with it and I'll go through all the side effects, but this is what you need to do or in my view, and this is why. And then the patient has almost no side effects. Um, so sometimes it's it's not just the physician um, minimizing. It might be, but it might be also where you are on that spectrum of vulnerability. Good, thank you. So um, because um, we're all scientists here, um, everybody, if you, if you showed up today, you are by definition a scientist because you're trying to figure out how work, things work and how to do them better. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to try um, again to use breakout rooms, which we've only done a few times here. And what I'd like to propose is that we're going to ask your help, the participants of today's program, your help in thinking about what, what do we need to convey to somebody who might be in one of these research studies for proper informed consent? What is What are the most important things you would like us to know in order to make that decision? So um, we're going to do a whirlwind tour of the groups. So room one, oh, I hope you remember which room you were in. Can one of you tell us uh, uh, maybe the highest, the most important things you thought should be included in the informed consent process? 
So my, my question is about how you convey risk to patients in a way that they can grasp. I don't, I have a math background and I feel like observing the COVID pandemic over the last year that not everybody has the best grasp of statistics. Good, good point. So actually, why don't we hand that to Rizal? So probably one of the questions that's going to come up is probability. You tell somebody the probability that your cancer will kill you in X number of months is this. And how do people understand those numbers? Um, so again, I, I tend to be very um, concrete and very um, uh, very honest about it. It's actually a very difficult conversation to have. And I think that many physicians have trouble with it. Uh, but I just tell people exactly when they ask me, um, you know, what is my chance of being alive um, a year from now? Um, it may be 90% or it may be 20%. And if it's 20%, I will say it's 20%. Um, and that I find that difficult as well, because, you know, it takes people's breath away. Um, I do always um, add that um, there is uh, variability and everybody is different. And uh, so you can't, um, you're not a statistic, but you ask me a question and I'm giving you the statistical answer. And I really do think people understand, like I have a 20% chance of being alive at one year, that's really bad. Or I have a 90% chance of being alive at one year. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. So your so your sense in response to Elizabeth is that people do seem to have a sufficient understanding of the of probability and what that means. Um, I think mm -hmm. that if you keep it simple, people really understand it. Um, and I do think people a very common question for patients is how long am I going to live? And I give them um, if I think it's six months, I will say I think it's six. Uh, the average patient is six months. I don't know if you're average or not. That would be my answer. I, I give simple, straightforward answers. Okay, good. Thanks. So let's go to room two. Uh, one of you can, can tell us what you came up with. Hi, we talked about also talking about, again, those uh, risks, which can be small, but serious, like, like dying. So... Um, uh, or whatever else, neurological sort of things, pain, um, gastrointestinal things, uh, um, osteoporosis, <clears throat> and sort of saying these are these are all possible downsides. Um, okay, that's it. So convey those risks. Um, yeah. So I think again, we try to give patients a realistic outline of the of the risks, and if. Um, the consent forms often have the risks extensively outlined. Um, unfortunately, I th think that when you have uh, 10 pages of risks, it's almost not useful. Um, uh, so the patient will, you know, sign the consent. And I don't know that they read all 10 pages or absorb that. And really what they want to know, in my experience, is what is my experience? 
Um, and I try to summarize that and to answer their questions transparently. Good. Thank you. Uh, Kamudra, did you have something you wanted to add? I saw your hand up a moment ago. Uh, yes. Well, it's just to kind of add up to what we discussed. Um, it is true that like there are so many side effects it's possible and the consent form, it can be long. And like, if I were a patient, I would read those consent for other than signing, but most likely as from a patient point of view, I guess the best way is to be able to answer their question from an expert point of view, you know, and I would really agree with what Rizal said, like the honest, the better, the, the simplest answer, it's the better for the patient. So I would say that would be like the best way to convey um, consent from, from patients. Okay, good. Thank you. I agree. And they have the consent form so they can go through every one of those side effects. And there are people who want to do that, but most patients don't. Most patients want to um, trust their physician to give them a view of what is likely to happen uh, with an understanding that there are outliers, you know, both in the good sense, outliers that do much better and outliers in the bad sense, people who um, unexpectedly do very poorly. Thank you. So uh, room five, Carol or Nancy, um, can you give a summary for your room? Hi, this is Nancy. Um, we understood the assignment to be to make a list of things that you want to see on an informed consent document. So Carol started rattling them off and I started writing them down. <laughs> and it's a very long list, but I've been checking off the ones that have been already been discussed. Um, Maybe mention a couple of ones that are close to the top of your your list then that would be relevant to add. As far as our list is concerned, the the highest remaining is what is the procedure that I'm agreeing to and um, what am I expected to do to participate in this? And I think that goes along with the tests that we will will be required of me if I agree to do this, will they be blood tests, biopsies, that, that type of thing, and the intervals between the test and um, things like that. I think what remains on our list is, can I change my mind during the clinical trial? And finally, will my cancer be most likely to kill me or will this clinical trial be likely to kill me? Um, that, right. that kind of thing. Is, is the clinical trial so risky that it may kill me even though my cancer hasn't had a chance to yet? So I want to uh, address the, all of those things are in the consent. And actually, uh, the consents usually have a detailed step-by-step uh, -step when you have to give blood, how much blood, how often you have to come in, and so forth. And then I think patients also want that outlined um, verbally for them uh, because sometimes reading the consent is really overwhelming. The other thing that is really important, and I always tell patients this, um, and I think it's really important for every patient to understand this, a consent form is not a contract. A consent form does not obligate a patient to anything. A consent form allows the physician to proceed with the clinical trial, but the patient is 
can withdraw at any time for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And that is the basic ethics of clinical research, that, um, that there is never a time where a patient um, must proceed in any way. Um, so I want to emphasize that here. And I do tell that uh, to every patient because uh, sometimes if you don't, they feel like uh, they obligated themselves. Uh, and then the last thing I want to mention is, is it more likely for the cancer or the clinical trial um, to um, kill you? Um, so the way we do clinical trials now, um, safety is really paramount. And even in the most experimental um, clinical trials, um, the death rate that is related to drug um, is generally um, in the range of about 1%. Uh, it is very low in cancer trials. Um, they have been, there are many safety features um, that are built in. So for the type of patients that I see, most of them have a median survival of um, expected nine months to a year. So 50% will have died of their cancer in nine months to a year. And we can compare that to a 1% uh, chance of dying um, due to the effects of uh, drugs. Um, clinical trials are way different than they were, let's say, 40 years ago. Um, and, and there are just so many safety features that are built into them. Um, and these patients are followed extraordinarily carefully. Um, so I did, you know, I did want to emphasize that. Is that 1% related to the hyperreactive chance that you see in some patients you mentioned? Um, no, actually, the hyperreactions we saw in patients that got FDA-approved drugs. Uh, we saw it, uh, the, the drug was FDA-approved, and we noticed um, that patient that we had, um, initially, we saw two patients in clinic. And, um, you know, I, I'm a pretty seasoned physician, and I, I'd never seen an acceleration like this. And uh, then we began to look for uh, more patients. But I do want to emphasize, and this is really important, um, so there is a small percentage of patients with immunotherapy that develop this accelerated progression. Um, it's probably in the range of less than 10%, maybe less than 5%. Um, obviously, very important for those patients. But in spite of that, I will say that I think these immunotherapy drugs are the best drugs that have ever come on the market. And it's because of the larger percentage of patients that respond, and even more than the response. Um, and I showed um, just a couple of patients um, like this, but we've had a lot. Um, that have very end-stage disease and you give them immunotherapy and um, the disease um, 
is, I, I think, cured. I mean, they go into complete remission. And um, so these, so I, I do want to emphasize the hyperprogression. Um, we're one of the groups that discovered it. It's a very important side effect. We think that there are molecular markers that increase the risk, but I don't want to diminish how um, important I think immunotherapy is uh, because I've seen so many patients that have had um, unimaginable uh, responses that were unimaginable just a few years ago. Yeah. To, by way of summary, too, I, I go one step further that um, any clinical trial or research study that's going to involve human subjects, if you know that the risk of getting the treatment that is going to be tested is worse than the risk of whatever disease is being treated, I don't believe any human subjects committee would approve that study. So not just for this kind of research. I agree. Yeah. So we're running out of, of time. So room six, um, you get to have the last summary from one of the groups. So most of the things we discussed already being mentioned, but one that was also came up in our group, uh, what other alternative treatments are there that um, our group wanted to know in, in, during the informed consent process? Okay, so Rizal, I assume if somebody's come to you, it's because other alternative treatments simply have not worked. But um, is there anything else you have to offer them on that count? Uh, so um, sometimes it's because um, no alternative treatments have worked, uh, but sometimes there are alternative treatments, uh, but um, they often have a very low response rates. Uh, so they may have response rates of 5% um, or 10% or the responses uh, when they occur are known not to last um, long. Um, so there has to be, um, uh, by the people who review uh, the clinical trial, a belief that what you're doing for whatever group of patients you're doing, that the chances are it's going to be better than the alternatives. Um, but for an individual patient, we never know. Um, but uh, again, um, the, uh, the clinical trial will not be approved if, um, from a statistical point of view, the belief is that the approved therapies or that there are approved options that would um, be better than the clinical trial. Now, of course, it could turn out that that's wrong, that the clinical trial doesn't work at all. Uh, but in general, you're pitting the clinical trial against something with very low response rates, you know, 5% or something like that. Okay. Well, um, we've um, remarkably already reached the uh, end time for this evening's program. Rizal, I want to thank you for another really interesting talk and presentation. Um I, you know, you covered a lot of very difficult ground and I think did it in a way that everybody could understand. Much appreciated. I want to thank the participants this evening for your comments. And um, I want to encourage everybody to keep these conversations going. Talk to your friends and family about what you heard today, not just because of the science, but because we want the science to be done well. So we need to talk about the ethical issues. So thank you and everybody have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.